This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. For the past nine years, book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate reading at the Library of Congress's National Book Festival. This year, the library is proud to commemorate a decade of words and wonder at the 10th Annual National Book Festival on September 25, 2010. President and Mrs. Obama are honorary chairs of the event, which provides D.C. locals and visitors from across the country and around the world the opportunity to see and meet their favorite authors, illustrators, characters, and poets. The festival, which is free and open to the public, will be held between 3rd and 7th Streets on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. on September 25th, rain or shine. At this time, I'm honored to welcome Pat Mora, an author, poet, and literacy advocate whose bilingual stories bring what she calls book joy to kids, parents, and educators around the world. Ms. Mora will be sharing her book, Book Fiesta, Celebrate Children's Day Book Day at the National Book Festival. Book Fiesta celebrates reading and commemorates Children's Day Book Day, the April 30th holiday that Mrs. Mora established in 1996. Pat Mora is decorated with honorary doctorates from the State University of New York, Buffalo, and North Carolina State University, and was recently named one of the 50 most inspiring authors in the world by Poets and Writers magazine. Congratulations to you, Mrs. Mora, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm delighted to be with you. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to begin writing your poems and books for children in particular, and have your own experience as a mother influenced the way that you've uh, written and chosen particular stories to tell? I think reading to my own three children uh, when they were growing up in El Paso, Texas, I became more and more uh, fascinated by the power of picture books. Eventually, I thought, I'd like to try that too. I think that the uh, being a child of the desert and of the U.S.-Mexico border who loved to read, that has probably been, those three elements, um, the most powerful elements in shaping uh, what I write about and how I write. You've also talked about rejection, which almost all authors go through early in their career uh, in, in getting published. How does one persevere throughout that? It takes stubbornness in most fields of life, and I think that's whether one decides to be a, a physician, a nurse, a writer, a painter. Every human being experiences setbacks and rejections. As a writer, uh, I think rejections are, are part of the game. Uh, I love what I do. I feel very fortunate to do it. So even when I get discouraged, I remind myself that I am lucky to be a writer, lucky to be a speaker, and love of my own work is what keeps me at it and what keeps me stubborn about getting new books published. You said that your aunt has been an inspiration for you. Why is that? <laughs> I, had, uh, uh, I come from a very close bilingual family. I had a wonderful aunt who was like a second grandmother to me. Her name was Ignacia Delgado. Actually, uh, come September, I'm going to start on a new picture book about her. Actually, I hope to write it with my daughter, which will be a new experience. My aunt was a wonderful storyteller. Um, she also, and I'll get teary even saying it, she really mm. modeled what it means to be a loving person for me. You know, mm -hmm. she didn't have children of her own. I'm the oldest of four. 
and we were her children. And she sacrificed and saved, and we always came first. Well, why do you, you talk a lot about diversity and, and bilingualism. Why do you think it's important to have kids start to read and write bilingually at an early age? What's most important is that kids early on have positive reading experiences. I spend a lot of time talking to parents about that. I try to stress to them that whether that early experience is in English or Spanish or Russian, what's important is that a child feel, oh, boy, when mom or dad or grandma pick up a book, this is a good time. We're gonna, I'm going to get to snuggle. I'm going to get to, you know, this is, this is time for me, the book, and this adult who cares about me. If the family happens to be bilingual, then, of course, I want those experiences to be in those languages. But the most important thing is that reading is not a punishment. Uh, it is a joy. I mentioned in the introduction the term book joy, which you coined. What does book joy mean to you, and, and when and how do you experience it? I tend to have long, busy days. And whether I am at home in Santa Fe or uh, if I'm traveling, at the end of a long day, one of my favorite moments is when I open my book and it's me and my book. And that's what I mean by book joy. And any real reader smiles when I say book joy because we know what it means. You talk uh, in your stories a lot about families, and clearly that's important to you and, and has influenced your background. What keeps you coming back to this topic? Others have said that writers don't always choose their topics. Their topics choose them. Hmm. Um, and I think in some ways that, you know, the power of the desert in my life and the power of this really loving family that I come from, it's like a magnet. And sometimes I'll, for example, with the aunt you mentioned, I sometimes think I have written the last book or poem I'm going to write about her. And I joke <laughs> with audiences that she just sneaks right back in, you know, because she's just such a powerful force, as was my own mom, you know. That says a lot, I think. Um, I've read a, you, you talk a lot about literacy. You talk about libraries and, and librarians. It seems that you have a special place in, in your heart for those kinds of issues. Why is that? I did go to the library as a child, thanks to my mom. It wasn't necessarily always a time that was equally welcoming to all kinds of kids, and I hear a lot of stories about that. And some of those young people who um, never were really noticed about by librarians who, when they were little, are now librarians themselves. So little by little as a country, I like to believe that, uh, contrary to what we always hear in the news, we are embracing diversity in complex ways. Um, the next generation is going to show us that one need not judge other people by their skin color or by their bank account. And I, you know, mm. I trust in that next, next generation because they are experiencing diversity day to day, you know, in their schools, at the shopping mall, and whatever. Um, I think it's one of our national strengths so that I am always, you know, sort of shocked at um, the, the way in which people seem to reject what I view as our 
part of our common good. You're also described as a literacy advocate. Do you do you agree with that? And do you see that your role as a writer and uh, an advocacy linked in some way? If by advocate we mean champion, I would be happy to accept that. <laughs> you know, I I am a champion of the power of books. I have spoken a lot. Lots of people speak a lot about the power of media, and I think it's a fact. On the other hand, I also think parents are powerful. I feel educators are powerful, you know, teachers and librarians. I feel books are powerful, that they uh, allow us to relax, to laugh, to learn, to become more empathetic. Uh, I am more human because of the books that I have been privileged to read, and I want that experience for all kids. Uh, there are far too many families, too many homes, in this country that are bookless, and it breaks my heart. I'm going to uh, give a spin to my high school Spanish here, but uh, uh, I mentioned the uh, children's, uh, or the family literacy initiative, Children's Day Book Day, or El Dia de los Niños, El Dia de los Libros. Uh, can you tell me about what that is and, and how it's evolved since uh, you began it in 1996? I joke that I was zapped by Dia, which is a fast way of saying that long name, El Dia de los Niños, El Dia de los Libros, Children's Day, Book Day. Uh, many people just call it Dia now, which means day. It's a good name for it. It's a daily commitment, you know, that uh, those of us who have embraced the idea of wanting to link all children to books, languages, and cultures. I often say that my friends, the librarians, and Charlotte, North Carolina, say DIA equals diversity in action, that they are busy reaching out to all the different sectors of their communities. And in a special way, we celebrate, we started out celebrating April 30th. Now for large library systems and school districts, they can't get them all in on one day. And so all during April, there are these culminating celebrations of this determined commitment to link all children to books, languages, and cultures. Hmm. You, um, you've uh, worked in quite a few genres. You've written poetry for adults. Uh, you've written for children, obviously, and uh, a nonfiction. And one of the things that you've written about is creativity. What is creativity in, in, in terms of, is it something that can be learned, or is it innate in a person, or maybe a combination? We're all creative. I firmly believe that. Uh, somehow, some of us early on, and that goes back to power of families, power of schools, uh, begin to doubt that we have interesting and different solutions to propose. Uh, that could be to a science question. It could be to writing a poem. It could be to writing a song. The uh, impetus for writing this new book, Zing, about seven creativity practices, was my concern that given the diversity in our classrooms, uh, sometimes not all of our students are viewed as equally creative, and sometimes the teachers and librarians at the front of the room don't firmly believe in their own dear hearts that they are creative. And as a country, we need that innovative energy. We need to believe in our potential. What do you think that educators can or should do about that? First, I think they have to work on believing it themselves. 
which is why in this book of 14, 14 letters, seven are to the educators and seven are to the educators linking that idea to their own students. So I mm-hmm. think we have to embrace the idea that I am a creative person. I have something special to contribute to the world. I have to give myself the quiet to hear that, to see it, to explore it. And maybe I do that by gardening or cooking or writing a poem, but we all need to uh, nurture and foster our, our creative potential. And as we do that, then we are more likely to say, oh, that's a great idea. I could do that with my students. I could do that with the kids who come to the library. We mm-hmm. have to experience it first. Mm-hmm. This is probably a good segue into the next question, but I often like to ask authors about their own writing process. Uh, some people do it at a certain time of the day, uh, a certain place, certain rituals. Uh, uh, how, do you, how do you write? Ideally, and life is seldom ideal, um, ideally I have a nice cup of tea, I have quiet, I have space around me. I'm a very messy writer, so I have my <laughs> dictionary and my thesaurus, and my and it's my Spanish dictionary, and so I make a big mess. So ideally, uh, I may be sitting at the dining room table, which is where I'm sitting as I'm talking to you, um, and uh, I have my cup of tea, and I, I have the quiet I need. Now, I've been writing for about 30 years, and I will say that through those 30 years, I have certainly written at airports and hotel rooms and uh, at restaurants, so we can't wait for the hmm. perfect situation. I think that's a problem. You know, people will say, well, I'm going to write, but I'm waiting for retirement. And I always say, well, start now. I started said, two hours a week. Yeah. You said that inspiration often finds you, not necessarily the other way around. I mean, are you on a plane sometimes and you start writing something on a napkin? How, how does that work? I've been known to do that. <laughs> I certainly have. I mean, I try to have a little notebook with me, but uh, the aunt that we talked about was always writing things on the back of envelopes, and so <laughs> probably I grew up seeing that. But, yes, I will just write down, you know, a phrase or an idea. Sometimes it's years before I get back to it. So I, I mention in that book on creativity to have sort of like a, what I call the compost file so that you are saving your ideas because that you will forget them. You've said before that one of the most important pieces of advice you can give is to, quote, learn to savor revision. <laughs> why, why is it that the first draft really is never the last draft? The first draft can be the last draft if it's a letter to my mom, it's uh, something I'm going to read to my friends at a party. In other words, personal writing does not usually need to be revised. Mm-hmm. If I'm interested in sharing it with a group of strangers, if I'm interested in publication, then I have to be um, committed to improving it. I, uh, when I speak to writing teachers, I say that we have to meet students where they are in their personal writing development. We mm. cannot ask students to be crazy about revision if they're early writers, and that could be early writers at 60, right? Mm. So that initially you have to begin generating a lot of text. 
as you do that, you and, and you're reading at the same time, and that has to be a combination. That's the winning combination. Then as you're doing that, your own standards for your own writing ideally will rise. And then you say, well, I think I could do that better. Mm-hmm. And that's when you fall in love with revision. Yeah. Uh, you're obviously read by countless children. What did you read when you were a young person? I um, grew up in a home with books, thanks to my mom. And uh, we had a set of orange books called The Childcraft. I even bought a set a few years ago. I managed to find one because I so loved the illustrations. They were not, you know, in full color or anything like that. But uh, I loved the rhymes in it, and that's one of the reasons I love to write poetry. You know, I loved um, poems like, I have a little shadow that could, goes in and out with me, and what can be the mm-hmm. use of him is more than I can see. Those <laughs> kind of things, you know, just, oh, they were so comforting to me. And maybe that's a key word, that books and reading are a comfort to me, both like the real comfort is when you pull it over, over you, and psychologically they are a comfort to me. They are a safe place for me, and I want that for kids. You've also said that you read the stories of Laura Ingalls Wilder mm-hmm. as a child. What drew you to those? I was looking through the W's at the library long before <laughs> Little House of the Prairie was even thought of, and I simply fell in love with that family. The interesting thing about that is that though I've spent much of my life talking about the power of seeing bilingual families in print, um, given the, the demographics of our country, that family, there was nothing like my family, except it was also a close family. So it wasn't mm. my family. And I was a member of that family, book after book after book. You um, obviously are going to be at the National Book Festival on September 25th. So what do you like to talk about at book festivals? What, what can your fans expect to hear from you? Well, I like to talk to them. I try to think about what questions they may have for me and try to answer those. Uh, the Book Festival is an event, um, you know, such an honor to go, and uh, usually the advice given is not to spend too much time reading, but to really chat with the audience. And in my previous visits, if I have gone around to different tents and li- listened to people. I remember the last time standing at the back and listening to Walter Dean Myers and thinking, oh, aren't we all lucky just to be in this tent listening to him? You know, he is such an imposing figure and such an important voice. So I just try to think about what my, my audience want to hear. I also try, try to share what are my loves. That's what a, that's, you know, a writer is taken back to the page, either by questions that we're trying to work out for ourselves, you know, sort of deep questions, but also we are driven back to the page by, uh, by our love, by our love of writing, but also for me, you know, by a love of a landscape, uh, by a love of stories, and so to share that with an audience. Hmm. Well, Pat Moore, before we let you go, do you want to talk about maybe what's coming up next for you? Well, one of the things that's coming up next is this book about the ant that you were kind enough to ask about. Um, it's a book, I, I sort of got the idea for the book probably five years ago. It's taken a while to get to it. 
But my aunt became a citizen very late in her life. And I think that would be an interesting story today. Uh, as a country, we are thinking a lot about immigration and citizenship. And uh, my aunt was very eloquent. Uh, in, uh, and I'm not going to give away the key line of the book. Very <laughs> eloquent in how she talked about why late in her life, though she was very proud to have been born in Mexico, why she decided to become a citizen. Well, Pat Mora, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, we definitely look forward to seeing you at the Children's Pavilion at the National Book Festival. That is on September 25th from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., rain or shine, and as always, free and open to the public. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.